Okay, we're going to be in uh, Genesis chapter 18 this morning. Um, normally, I read the entire passage beforehand. I'm not going to do that because it's a long passage. We are going to read it, but we're going to read it as we go through it. But let's uh, start with prayer. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we, uh, we're here because we, we love you and we need you. And we believe that your word is your presence. We believe that your spirit is also your presence. So, Lord, have mercy on us. Grace us with both your word and your spirit and your truth this morning. Open our hearts, Lord. Humble us in our hearts and minds to hear from your word, to be taught, to be listening, to be submitted to you. Lord, thank you for the joy of uh, learning corporately, of being together, and we um, pray these things in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, Genesis chapter 18, we're continuing our journey through Genesis, I'm going to move this forward because I know it's going to bother me. Um, For those of you who are new or haven't been coming, we are a plurality of leadership. What that means is there's a group of us that share the teaching, and I'm one of them. So that's what you get. Uh, I I don't get paid. If you don't like it, you can tell me, but you can't fire me. So I'm allowed to keep saying what I want to say. No, but we work really hard to try and coordinate and march through Scripture, and we have undertaken almost exactly a year ago, close to a year ago, give or take, we've undertaken the wonderful journey of Genesis, preaching through it. Genesis gets taught in snippets. It rarely gets taught as the whole thing. And uh, over the next couple of weeks, you're going to learn why, because there are things in here that are tough. Um, That being said, today we're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. I'll be covering topics that uh, if you don't want to have to talk about them with your kids later, then maybe send your kids to Sunday school, because uh, we're going to talk about what's in the text. I was a I prepare my sermons in a, a public place that I've been going for years, and I know a lot of the staff people there. So last night I was, I was sitting, working with my Bible open, and one of the staff members comes over and he says, Preacher Joel, you you working on a, on a sermon? I said, yeah, and this staff member happens to be transgender and homosexual, and he goes, well, what's the topic? I said, Sodom. <laughs> and so we had a good conversation about it. Um, anyway, um, as, we, as we go through... Genesis, we're working really hard to stick with what it says and not what we wish it said or what we would be more comfortable if it said. We're really trying to say, what, what does this say? What is in here? And one of the things we've had to learn is a certain measure of uh, humility that our Western evangelical culture is not always congruent in mindset or in perspective with Old Testament, ancient, pre-Hebrew culture. And that's kind of where we are today. This goes way back. And what we've learned is that a lot of what we see in Genesis, the world was very different then. There were different expectations, different assumptions. And we take a lot of that for granted. We're constantly trying to fit Genesis into what we want it to say, For example, we try to turn the creation narrative into a science manual. It's not. You can learn a lot of science from it, but it's not why it was written. It was written to explain the authority and the arrangement and the organization of the universe by God, which is different. It it explains more the, the what and the why than the how. But we're always looking for the how. We do that. We project ourselves onto Genesis a lot. Um, similarly, as we look at this passage, we tr- we're going to try, I'm, I'm going to make you very uncomfortable. Some of you are very used to that with uh, my messages. I'm going to make you uncomfortable because I want you to look at what it says and what the Bible says about what it says, not what you've been taught in Sunday school, not culturally what you're comfortable with, even though it's, nobody's comfortable with this passage, uh, but we're going to look at what does it say. So let's get into it. Genesis 18. The very beginning, first of all, we have to say, well, where were we? Uh, we spent last week, Johnny preached um, chapter 17, and it was the, the promising of, uh, 
of the birth of Isaac, which has been a long time coming. It's 25 years, give or take 20 years, uh, about 20, 25 years since it was originally promised. Abram has been very patient since then. I preached the covenant before that, which was in between about 10 years from that promise. And so Abram's been waiting and waiting and waiting. And God had said to Abraham in the last, uh, in the last passage, you're not Abram, you're Abraham, your wife's not Sarah, it's Sarah, and Isaac's coming very, very soon. Um, one of my favorite parts about that passage is in uh, 1719, where it's the only place that I can find in most popular translations of Scripture where it says, God said no. That's, that's what it says, the beginning of 19. It says, God said no, and then verse 20 says, but I have heard you which I think is a really important way to listen to um, or think about how we talk to God and a lot of our interaction with Him. He says, no, but I've heard you. And we're going to see that same kind of pattern repeat in chapter 18, where Abram's going to have, and, and all the way into chapter 19 as well, where Abram's going to ask for things and God's going to say, no, I'm not doing it that way, but I have heard you. And I am going to honor what you've asked for, but I'm not doing what the way you want me to do it because He has something else He's working on. So we get to the beginning of chapter 18, and it says right here, And the Lord appeared to him, that's Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Now right there, the Lord, that's Yahweh. It's the, the name of God. Yahweh appeared to him, which is different from when you look back in uh, 1715, where it says, And God said to Abraham. So, there, so Abraham's had a lot of communication with God, but this is different. God shows up. He shows up. And he shows up physically. And, I, and, and we're going to look at a couple of places in Scripture where the, it says the angel of the Lord appears physically, has a physical interaction with somebody. And here's what I want you to, what I want to press on you is he showed up physically. This is an encounter with a being who is more than human, but is in a human-like body doing human-like things, but is recognizable as not entirely human. There's something different going on here. And there are a lot of commentators who have been over backwards to try and explain that this didn't really happen. It was just a vision in Abram's head. No, it definitely happened. There's a meal prepared and eaten. It's not just a, it wasn't just a thought that he had. And other people were involved in the preparation. Now, one of the things that's going to be strange about this is you can't quite pin down this humanoid form of God because there's three beings, but there's one, but there's three, and then there's two, but one's still talking to Abram, but he left. That's basically what we're working with. That's not the only place in Scripture where that happens, by the way, where God is there, and then he leaves, but he's still there. And the, the ancient Hebrews, actually, uh, the, the um, Pharisaical teachers actually had a tradition in the Old Testament that God was two or three in one. You don't get a lot of Trinitarian teaching in the Old Testament. It's there, but we take our evangelical uh, mindset and try and say, oh, well, this is just the Trinity. No, it's not. This is not the Trinity because the Bible says nobody has ever seen the person of God. But we do see Christ. So this is Jesus showing up in person because when God, when Yahweh, and that's the word it uses there, when Yahweh appears as person, it's Jesus. In fact, and we don't have time to go to all of it, but we're, we're told that uh, John says that Jesus was the one who led them out of Egypt and went before them. When, and that happens later after, uh, you know, Abram and Isaac and Jacob, etc. They go to Egypt, and they're there 400 years. John tells us that Jesus was the one that led them out, and that, was, and, and that he's the one who went before them. So Jesus is definitely in the Old Testament, just not the way we think about it. So this is, and the word for that is theophany, an appearance of, of God, and this is an appearance of God, but it's confusing, so just let it be confusing. I'm not going to try and make it not confusing, but I'm also not going to make it less than it is. God shows up. Let's see what it says. So the Lord appeared to Abram by the oaks of Mamre as he sat in the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Now it's hot there. So this is, 
Just geographically, if you imagine a map, if I was super prepared, I'd have a slide, but you can imagine it. If you were looking at a map, you'd have the Mediterranean on the left side, the strip of land that is Israel, and then the Dead Sea on the right side. The, uh, where Abram is is in Hebron, which is in the region of Judah, which is in the high portion between those two bodies of water, where Sodom and Gomorrah are, are down in the valley of what now probably is covered by the southern portion of the Dead Sea. So Lot's down in a valley about 20-ish miles away, and Abram is up high in the high places in the land of Judah, and they're in this desert region. This southern Israeli region is hot and dry, and you, if you go there, you'd swear nothing could live there, but there's actually a lot of springs and natural springs, and if you've ever been there and been to En Gedi, there's actually some really beautiful oases, and, um, but it's hot. So if it's the heat of the day, this is not the time anybody would normally be traveling. So in the heat of the day, in that culture, you don't do much, especially pre-air conditioning. You don't do anything because it's too hot. So he's sitting in basically the, the flap of his tent, the overhang of his tent, sitting in the shade, looking out. It says he looks up, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So he looks up, there's three guys, boom, standing there. And he recognizes immediately, this isn't regular people. And it doesn't say why. When he saw them, he ran. How old is Abram at this point? 99. Imagine a 99-year-old man running around in the heat of the day. He ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. That's a long sentence. So I want to point out, this is Abram's response to seeing God. He saw, he ran, he bowed, he acknowledged, he invited. That's what he does. He sees God, he notices him, he rushes to him, he bows, so he humbles himself before God, he acknowledges who God is and who he is, he arranges properly, and then he invites God to stay and be blessed. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And this, is, and this is a physical, personal interaction. Wow, that's loud. Somebody's having a fun Sunday morning. Um, <laughs> He, he has this personal, physical interaction. He recognizes this is special. Now, remember, Abram, at this point, Abram is one of the richest people on the planet at this point, as far as we know, as far as we can estimate. His, his wealth is so great that he and Lot had to spread out by tw- and put 20-odd miles between them because they literally overwhelmed the land with the amount of possessions and people. His household was so powerful, we know he had 318 trained mercenary warriors, and that is the word there. It's only used in the Bible in that one spot, but it's used in ancient Egyptian texts. The trained warriors he had were mercenary warriors. So he had an army of 300 plus people in addition to the rest of his household. He's a powerful guy. He would be, in Middle Eastern terms, he's a sheikh. And he's 99. But he has no problem serving God when he sees him. And there's one, the more I thought about that, there's only really one reason. He considers it a great privilege and honor to wait on God. He doesn't want somebody else to do this. He wants to do it. He wants to wait on God. He's excited to wait on God. You can tell he's excited. He's running around all over the place. Listen to what it says. They respond to him, and and that's the thing. It says, so they said. So some people say, well, it's Jesus plus two serving angels. Maybe. It could be because later two angels go on. But when they're talking with Abram, they're speaking as a collective. It's weird, isn't it? It's strange. It's hard to pin it down. It keeps kind of squirming out of what... keep trying to picture it, and it just kind of wriggles out of the picture over and over. So they said, do as you have said. And Abram went quickly into the tent and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. Three measures of flour, by the way, that shows up in in the... uh, the, the parable of the leaven when Jesus says it's like a woman who hid leaven in three measures of flour. And it's the Jews who are very familiar with this story would have been like, no, no, you don't do that. And I'll, I'll show you a little bit more why. So quick, three 
sia is a fine flour, knead it and make cakes. They say sias, sias measures, it's a weird word. Um, later sias became a large amount, like seven quarts. I don't think it's 21 quarts of flour here, that would just be way too much for three people. But, so a lot of translations say three measures, some say sias, but that, that uh, measurement has shifted a little over time. Knead it and make cakes. And then he runs, says, and he's still running, and Abram ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and then he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Pretty neat, huh? Notice there's everything but what's missing from this feast. Wine. Everything but wine. Later, when you get into uh, the passage of Lot and his daughters, what's the only thing at their feast? Wine. I don't know why. It's just You notice it's conspicuously absent here and conspicuously present in the same narrative later on. So Abram uh, makes this meal. He hurries. He tells them, wait right here. Please, stay. Refresh yourselves. I'm going to bring water. I'm going to bring food. And they say, Okay. And he runs around, he makes this meal, he comes out and he gives it to him, and then he stands there and watches the meat. Why? Because he's so excited to be serving Yahweh. He's so excited to be personally waiting on Yahweh, he's considering this one of the greatest honors he could have, and he doesn't want to miss the chance. It's a, a really neat picture of service, isn't it? It's... I mean, there's a lot of people who serve in this church. I look around the room. There's a lot of people who, who are involved. There are people who have been here for hours already today. There are people who have been working on this morning throughout the week, and I know because I'm on the text threads of which songs and who's singing and swapping pieces around and who's doing sound, and somebody's got to take this later and edit it and upload it and put it on YouTube so we are literally dozens of followers. We'll have something to watch. And, um, <laughs> but I mean, so there's a lot of work that goes into it, right? And it's service, and it's my, as Johnny said last week, I can absolutely concur, it's my joy and honor to be able to serve with you. I had texts from our brother uh, Sam in India this morning, and it's what's so neat about our ongoing conversation is, like, we're both so excited about what God's doing in India, and, and we get to work together on it. And it's every time I get to actually see him, then it's like, all right, we get to go do the work together now. We're going to go out and we're going to preach together. We're going to serve our king together. And it, that's what service should be. It's not something that we do, you know, because we like God and I guess he's done some good stuff for us and I call myself a Christian, so I should probably do what he said. No, it should be this excitement, this, this honor, this, this joy of the simplest thing. And Abram's not trying to do anything big. He's saying, let me get your feet cleaned and bring you a snack. And to him, he's like, there's nothing else I'd rather be doing. I'm one of the richest, most powerful men in the entire region. Everybody knows my name. I just defeated five kings a couple chapters ago. I turned down a treaty with the king of Sodom. I'm, I'm a big deal. He's like, no, I'm, I'm going to bring God a snack. That's what he's doing. And that's service. Because he knows who God is and he knows who he is. He's got the right perspective. Meanwhile, if you look at how Jesus is so often treated... When he shows up in the New Testament, walking around in physical body, I don't know, maybe he looked the same. I don't know. But uh, probably not, actually, because it says that he looked like any other man because he, he hadn't been born into a human body yet. So this is something different, and I'll show you why I think so. But when Jesus shows up in the New Testament, everybody's asking him, what are you going to do for me? What are you going to do for us? When are you going to do this? What are you going to do that? What are you going to do the other? And then when he says, well, I'm going to do this, and people say, no, 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 not that, not that. So it's, a, it's a, a, a total reversal. Abram has it right. Let's look quickly at a couple of other places where God shows up and has an interaction with somebody. Flip to the right. Um, let's go real quick just to Exodus 3. And we're not going to spend a lot of time here. This is the burning bush. You all are very familiar with this one, most likely. But this is a fun one. If you just look at 3-2, I just want to show specifically something. It's not just a burning bush. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses 
in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. That's what it says. So God is in the fire, in the bush, watching Moses. And then when he notices Moses noticing him, then they start having a conversation. That's interesting. Just, you know, the specifics matter. Uh, keep turning to the right. Go over to uh, Judges. This is a really fun one. If you haven't read Judges in a while, by the way, read it. It's a, there's some stuff in here. It is a cool book. Go to Judges chapter 6. And I just want to... I'm going to read quickly this, this encounter of the story of Gideon and the first interaction he has with God showing up as a person to talk to him. And Gideon, contrary to Abram, Gideon doesn't recognize who he is at first, and then he realizes later who he's talking to. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under, I'm in uh, Judges chapter 6, verse 11, and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. Apparently God likes sitting under trees with people, which belonged to Joash, the Abiserite, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in a wine press to hide it from the Midianites. They're being oppressed. Verse 12, and the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon's literally hiding his food so it doesn't get stolen. The angel shows up and says, hey, you powerful warrior, God's with you. And he means it literally. He's like, no, I'm God. I'm actually with you right now. And Gideon doesn't get it. Gideon starts going, uh, yeah, if God's with us, why am I here? Why is this happening? That's literally what he says in verse 13. Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. He doesn't realize he's talking to that God right there. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did, I, did not I send you? Do not I send you? He's saying, I, God, am telling you you are mighty, go defeat the Midianites. Gideon says, um, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan's weak. I'm no big deal. And the Lord says to him, in verse, I'm speeding through this, the Lord said to him in verse 16, but I'll be with you. Pretty neat encounter, isn't it? And then Gideon, in verse 17, he said, if now I found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. He says, if you're really God, I, I just want to know. That's fair, I guess. Verse 18, please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. He wants to feed him. And God says to him, I'll stay till you return. So Gideon goes into his house. Now, this should sound really familiar. He gets a young goat, unleavened cakes, and the meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot, and he brings them out under the tree and puts them before God. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. So he did. Then the angel of the God reaches out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, touches the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire comes up and consumes it, and the angel of the Lord vanishes from his sight. And then Gideon goes, oh, that, that wasn't just a guy, like that really was God. So he vanishes, and then Gideon freaks out and says, oh no, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But then God's still talking to him. God says to him, peace be with you, do not fear, you shall not die. So see what I mean when I say you try to get this arranged in your head, like, okay, God's here, he's talking, okay, he left, but he's still talking to him. Where is he? Where, where's God? Which, in the story of Abraham, like, which of the people is, is he? The answer is yes, he is. Whether he leaves or goes, he's still there. Um, so that, that's one. Flip over a couple... Uh, couple more um, pages. I think it's chapter 13, Judges 13 or so. Another really, really strange one. Yeah, chapter 13, verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah in the tribe of Danites whose name was Manoah. This should sound very familiar. His wife was barren and had no children. Common themes in these stories. And the angel of the Lord appears to the woman and says to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Sounds a lot like the story of Abram, right? And so then he gives her some instructions about what she is to do and not do during this pregnancy because this son is going to be a Nazarite and it's going to be Samson. And then she goes back and she's got to tell her husband. And she goes, a man of God came to me 
Now, this is very interesting. And his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. That's what she says. So what she's saying is, God came to me, and I know it wasn't a regular person because he had a very distinct appearance. And I want you to hold on to that because Abram looked up, saw these people, and immediately knew who it was. Something is different. And then when we get to Sodom and Gomorrah, they respond very differently. The men of the city respond very differently to the angels of God than they do to a regular person. There's something specific going on here. So then she has this conversation with her husband and Manoah. This is pretty neat. In verse 8, Manoah prays to Yahweh and says, Lord, let the man who you sent come again because I want to meet him and I want to have this conversation too and I want to make sure we're doing this right. And God listened to the voice of Manoah and then she's out in the field shortly afterwards and God shows up again. And so what does she do? She runs back. She goes, wait right here. I got to go get my husband. He's been waiting to meet you. She runs back and goes and gets him. They come out. They have this whole conversation. And then in verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said, I won't eat the food, but if you prepare a burnt offering and offer it to the Lord, Manoah did not know that it was the angel of the Lord. And so they, they bring out, uh, they say, what's your name? And the angel says, why do you ask my name? That's happened a few times in scripture. So Manoah takes the young goat and the grain and he puts it on a rock. Again, very common themes. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. That's in verse 20. It's pretty neat. These are if somebody tried to explain this today, they'd be calling Coast to Coast Radio and being like, listen to this encounter with a being I just had. And it would be fallen broadly under the category of some sort of weird extraterrestrial encounter. Like, I looked up and this person was talking to me and he looked different and I tried to feed him and he went up in the flame. I mean, that's, that's what we're talking about here. These are encounters with the living God, but in flesh, and they, they take them a little bit more in stride than we do. We're always trying to fit it into what we would expect, our cultural norms, and it just doesn't really work like that. Okay, back to Genesis 18. So then they, I'm in verse 9, so Abram's standing under the tree with them while they eat, and then they, they're still speaking in the collective, say to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And Sarah's plainly listening to all this because she's in the tent. And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, as Yahweh says, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She's about, uh, she's pushing 90 right now. He's pushing 100, she's pushing 90. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord says to Abram, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. This is the thing. Remember how we said before how when people ask questions of God, so often his response is, just to remind them who he is and repeat what he already said. He says, don't you know who I am? What I said is true. He doesn't explain it. He doesn't say, no, here's the thing. I'm going to do this and that, and don't worry, you're going to be fine, and we're going to do something miraculous in your body, and I've got it all planned. He doesn't say it. He just says, is anything too hard for God? What I said was, when I come back in about a year, you're going to have a baby boy. And Sarah probably like calls through the tent or something, says, I did not laugh. <laughs> and he says, yeah, you did. <laughs> and that's the end of that conversation. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and then they named the kid Laughter later, which is appropriate. Um, so then in verse 16, the men set out from there and they looked toward Sodom. And Abram, again, still showing good manners, walks with them to send them on their way. And the Lord says, not to Abram, by the way, he says it within this collective of himself, he says in verse 17, shall I hide from Abram what I'm about to do? 
seeing as Abraham will surely, sorry, I'm, I'm mixing Abram and Abraham. It's, it's all Abraham at this point, or Abraham, as whoever was saying that before. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Now, here's something really cool. This is something we need to know about God. We've been trying to point this out through Genesis. God likes to include his people in his plans. He likes it. He has a counsel. He likes to have conversations about what he's going to do. We see that over and over in the Bible, but we don't think of God that way. We try and put him up as like this this supreme, isolated being, and he is indeed supreme, but he's not supremely isolated. He doesn't isolate himself. He has people around him. He has hosts and hosts and hosts around him. He has conversations. We see, and we've looked at some of them. We don't have time to go to them this morning, but multiple times in Scripture, he has conversations within his heavenly council to make decisions about what's going to happen on the earth or what's going to happen to people. It happens in Job, it happens in Kings, it happens in the book of Daniel, all of those places. And you even have some of his people showing up and having conversations and making decisions on behalf of God because he's told them to go do the thing. It's pretty neat, isn't it? So God's talking with his trio here, and he says, we should tell Abraham what we're going to do. Because Abraham's, you know, I've got plans, like he's part of all this, why would I hide it from him? And this thing he says in here, in verse 19, says, for I have chosen him. And if you raise your hand if your translation says, for I know him. I know him. Yeah, a few translations say that. That is the word there. It's yada. It's to know. And that is that very, very intimate knowledge. We're going to see it very uncomfortably in the next chapter as they use that word. But that's the same word back in Genesis chapter 4 where Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. So God says, I know Abraham. I've known him and I've chosen him. That he may command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And then this is really neat at the end of verse 19. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he's promised him. He's saying, he's going to do this so that I can do for him what I've said I'm going to do. It's still not Abraham doing it. It's God doing it. It's God doing it. Then the Lord said in verse 20, this is where things start to get eerie, guys. Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. This is a weird way for us to think about God. First of all, he's saying, I'm going down to see, which, what's the only other place he says that? We talked about it. Anybody remember? Tower of Babel. That's the only other place where God says, I'm going to go down and see. See if what I'm hearing is what's really going on. So he says, there's been so much outcry against this place, I'm going to go see it for myself. Now, that raises the obvious question, who's crying out? Who is talking to God about Sodom and Gomorrah? What's going on at Sodom and Gomorrah that is such an ongoing problem that God says, when he says, I'm going to go see and I'm going to know, he actually enters himself personally into the situation and experiences what's going on. He's not from afar because these angels, at least two of them, go straight down to Sodom and Gomorrah and have a real bad time there. And that's that word when he says, I will see if, it is, if it's as exactly what everybody's been saying, and if not, I will know. That's that same intimate knowledge where he's saying, I'm going to go intimately experience for myself whatever's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah that I've been supernaturally hearing about for who knows how long. So something is going on at Sodom and Gomorrah. Something is going on in such a way that it's reaching the ears of God and it's of such disturbance that he says, I'm going to go see. And he hasn't done that since Babel. Now, here's, remember the narrative of Genesis. You have creation, the fall, the fall of the sons of God, 
the fall of the nations, that's Babel. Well, first of all, you have creation, the fall of man, the fall of the sons of God, then the flood, then the fall of the nations at Babel, and then that's the Tower of Babel. And then God draws Abram out. That's about 25 years prior to where we are today. The crazy thing about that is, you remember those three sons of Shem, Ham, Japheth, three sons of Noah after the flood? Shem's still alive today when this happens. Sodom and Gomorrah are Shemitic cities. They're Semitic cities. So there's something that ties this back all the way through, and I'm going to show you how we know this, all the way back through the scriptural narrative that Sodom and Gomorrah are doing something that they know better and should not be doing. And God has heard about it, and he's disturbed enough to make a personal appearance. So there's a couple of places in Scripture where Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned, I think, six more times in Scripture, and there's a couple of places where it talks about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, first one is Ezekiel. Uh, we're going to go to Ezekiel 16. And when the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is talked about, it's either, I'm just going to prepare you, it's either oversimplified or undervalued. People are trying to pinpoint it to just, well, it's, it's this, or it's, it's just sodomy. It's just these, these homosexual, lustful relationships. Well, that's certainly an element, but there's more to it than that, because there were lots of ancient civilizations that were very, very homosexual, very lust-driven, and they weren't wiped off the map. So there's something more going on here. That's not to minimize that, but I just want to be, let's be honest about what we're seeing. So go to Ezekiel 16. This is one place where Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned. And I'm in the wrong spot. You can keep a finger in Ezekiel. We're probably going to come back. Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Remember he said, I'm going to go see? This is God talking a long time later, and he's reminding them. He said, this city had everything. They were prosperous. They treated people like garbage, and there was something very, very abominable about what they were doing. So when I went and saw it, then I removed them. So I looked up abominations. Here are some things that uh, are called abominations in Scripture. Sexual deviance, including homosexuality. Child sacrifice. Uh, prostitution of God's people. Demonic offspring. And dishonesty. You guys, you guys were all with me until we got to that last one. They are like, oh... Oh, yeah, if you want to look, that's Deuteronomy 25, 16. Dishonesty, it's an abomination. Same word as demon offspring and child sacrifice. <laughs> Just as nasty to God. Oh, I hate, I hate it when I wind up on lists I didn't know about. So, you know, so, so that we get this reference to the sin of Sodom. I know we're, we're pushing time, guys, but we, we've got to cover this. We get this reference to the sin of Sodom, and it's... Something about they knew better, they had been blessed, they treated people badly, and there was something very, very abominable about what they were doing. Now, the, the postmodern American Western Evangelical Church says, oh, well, it's just homosexuality. That is part of what's going on here. But again, there were many nations, the, you go look at the ancient Greeks, they were very homosexual. Those were, there were lots of homosexual cultures in ancient mankind. This one is particular. It's different. How do we know? Go to our favorite book of weird things in the Bible, the book of Jude. He talks about it, and it is a, it's a weird little book. He crams a whole lot of mystery into, you know, what is it, 25 verses. So Jude, chapter, or there's no chapter, verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, I told you it was Jesus, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He's talking about the people who fell in the desert. And 
The angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, where did that happen? That's Genesis chapter 6. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and came and took wives of them, and it created the Nephilim. And then, because of that, the flood. If that's new to you, we taught on it, go back and look it up. It's creepy stuff. So, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Uh, Homer uses the same description. There's a word there that's used here. Uh, it's used here, and I think it's used in Peter, and otherwise we know what it is from Homer. It's part of the Greek mythology of where these demonic beings are kept. They're chained under the earth. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Okay, so he's connecting. He's connecting Sodom and Gomorrah directly to Genesis chapter 6. He's saying there was an unnatural relationship happening here. And then he goes on to say, and people today are committing a similar sin, where he says, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defiling flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme glorious ones. Same sin category. It has something to do with the angels and the treatment of God. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is not just sexual immorality. He says that it's sexual immorality. It's not just a lack of hospitality. Yeah, that's a problem. But it has something to do with how these supernatural beings are being treated. And you'll see next week, uh, Brian's up, and he's going to talk through chapter 19. These two angels go down to Sodom and Gomorrah, after, and meanwhile, so it says they, they leave Abram. In fact, we'll just go there. we still got to finish the passage. Go back to Genesis 18. Abram has this conversation, and we're just going to have to kind of skip the, the back portion of it where he has this negotiation with God. Abram has this conversation with God in verse 22, Genesis 18, 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. So the men leave, just like in, that, in the um, Gideon thing. But Abram stood still before the Lord. They left, but he's still there. Then Abram drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And they have this conversation where he says, suppose there are 50 righteous in the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous people? And they work their way all the way down to 10. And God says, if I find 10, I won't destroy it. And there's a couple of really neat passages um, if in that Ezekiel one, I told you to keep your finger in, Ezekiel 22 and Jeremiah 5.1, there are both places where God says, I'm looking for one righteous person, so I have an excuse to spare the city of Jerusalem in that case. He says, I'm going through the streets trying to find one man who does what's right so I can spare the city. But what happens is these angels go down, and, for, and there's not three now, there's two. It doesn't explain why, so I won't. Um, and they show up in the city, and Lot, Abram's nephew, sees him and immediately says, don't stay here. So he knows there's something about them that this is not going to go well. He brings them to his house. Every man in the city, young and old, and you'll get this next week, shows up at the house and says, bring those guys out. We're going to have sex with them. That's what they say. Not, not some deviant guys, every man in the city. Now, you know this city can't be strictly homosexual because those young men came from somewhere. So Lot says, no, here are some women. And they say, no. Then the two angels supernaturally strike the entire mob blind, and the mob doesn't even care. They wear themselves out trying to find the door to break it down. That's what it says. This is not just your, your typical lustful episode. These guys are absolutely so depraved in what it is that they're seeking, and the case I've made today is that it's beyond normal flesh, that there's a supernatural desire that they have to know, to take, to have, to take advantage of, and they're so driven for it, they don't care that in an instant 
They, the whole city of men goes completely blind, doesn't even slow them down. They keep going. So then you'll find what happens is the angels tell Lot, like, yeah, we, we're getting you out of here because this place is going up. But then they say, but we can't do anything until you leave. And Lot has a real hard time leaving. They physically drag him out of the city, and they say, go to the hills. And here's another interesting thing. Lot is scared to death of the hills. He doesn't want to go. Doesn't say why, but he says, there's evil out there. I can't go out there. Please, can I go to this other city? And that's the only one that gets spared. Archaeologically, we know where that city is. We've still found it. That's Zoar. Let's stop here. Um, the worship team, go ahead and come on up. So the point I wanted to make today beside, or is twofold. God's real. He's a real being. Jesus is real. He says that he will have meals with us, and here we have a picture of him showing up. And when we understand who he is and who we are, then our service of him is a joy, and it's all we want to do. Meanwhile, God is looking for those people who have that kind of heart versus the people who want to take what they can get from God. And Sodom and Gomorrah is the, uh, the most extreme version of that, using and abusing God himself for their own ends. And there's something that the Bible says is really, really abominable about that. I want to sing this first song, and then I'm going to come back up and lead us in communion. I'll take a few minutes, and I want to talk just generally about the, the sexual sin elements of this. So you can look forward to that while we have our first song. Let me pray. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the mystery of your word. Thank you for the difficulty of your word. Thank you that, uh, Lord, you don't shy away from anything in us. You have an answer for all of it. You can address anything in us, no matter how dark, no matter how abominable. And so we also shouldn't shy away from the truth in your word, even when it's hard. Lord, have mercy on us as we worship you. Help us to see you more and more accurately, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship this first song, and I'll be up in a few minutes. So Sodom and Gomorrah are so often held up as the, uh, the, the symbol of sexual deviance. And we have um, kind of, many of us have grown up kind of hearing, well, this, this particular sexual sin is so abominable that that this requires this special condemnation, and I'm talking about homosexuality. And as I, as I hope I've shown you today, there's more to it than that. It doesn't lessen the fact that sexual deviance is a problem, but we should not minimize our sexual sin with respect to other sexual sins to create special condemnation when perhaps we have completely misunderstood a lot of what the whole point of that story was. When it comes to sexuality, God has created a standard of sexuality. And as we uh, preach through Matthew and through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made it real clear that uh, none of us meets it. None of us meets it. And so, when we meet somebody who's struggling with a particular area of sexuality or sexual confusion our response should be, yeah, I guess we have that in common, don't we? Because we do. It may be different between different people, but every single one of us falls short of God's standard of sexuality. And different people are going to struggle differently. And what we cannot do is start making exceptions and excuses and carve-outs and and, and say, well, you know, if it's like this, then it's okay, but if it's like this, then it's not okay. Either direction. We can't start saying, well, I was, I remember having a, a theological debate with a, a very close friend of mine who's um, uh, a, a brilliant mind, who's uh, on faculty at Oxford by the time he was like 33, and uh, teaching philosophy and culture and civilizations, and he happened to be homosexual. And he told that to me, and my response was, well, I guess we have that in common. And he said, what? And I said, sexual sin. We both have that in common. And we had this, and he said, no, you don't understand. I, 
I was born this way. I was like, yeah, me too. Not the same way, but sexual sinner, born with it. Absolutely. Um, there are children in the room, so I, I won't tell some of the, some of the jokes. But, um, but the point is, I cannot give him or myself a pass according to God's word. We're both called to righteousness. We both come up short of it. We may come up short of it from different directions, but we both ultimately are in the same boat of falling short of God's standard when it comes to sexual purity and sexual righteousness. And Jesus says, by the way, most of that occurs in your head. Most of it occurs in the heart choices that you're making. I remember having an epiphany of this when uh, I was a, a young man going into uh, a boot camp, you know, I was 18, uh, hormonally charged, rip-roaring, ready to go all the time, like most 18-year-olds are. Then I went to boot camp, which is profoundly unsexy. Um, there's nothing attractive there from that sense. And I remember getting to the end of uh, uh, the first six weeks or so and being like, wow, I haven't had a lustful thought in six weeks because there was just no material. Like, there was nothing. And this is, you know, being an 18-year-old coming out of, you know, high school where you're struggling with those things and you're having those interactions, you're seeing those things and you're dating different people and putting yourselves into compromising situations and it's tough. But it's really interesting that once all that was removed, like not so much of a struggle anymore because boot camp was profoundly unsexy. And that was really interesting to me because what I realized was, you know, most of this problem is just the choices I'm making and what I'm choosing to surround myself with or what I'm fixing my mind on or the situations I'm putting myself in or the kinds of interactions I'm having with people. It's me. I'm the problem. And I've had a lot of conversations, like I'm sure you have, and, it, and, and I know a lot of you in this room are thinking of some particular struggle that you have or some particular shame point in your life. We all have it in common. Might not look exactly the same across the room, but we all have it in common. And I've had a lot of conversations with uh, men in the church who said, no, but you don't understand, like this, this struggle is so, this temptation is so powerful. And like, I know I, it'd be nice to have the cop out to say like, well, I have this, um, this particular struggle and nobody else gets it. But then I go to 2 Corinthians 10.10 10, and very irritatingly it says, no temptation has fallen you except what is common to man. So we don't even get that. <laughs> like, you, your, your battle is everybody's battle. Again, maybe a little differently. People may lean one direction or the other, but we all are in the same center's boat. Now, our culture, our culture is making a big push, if you haven't noticed in the last decades, is making a big push to, to celebrate all kinds of sexual deviance. And guys, that's not going to go away, and it's going to increase, not decrease. And the, and the list of acceptable deviance is going to get longer and longer and longer and longer. And it's going to get harder and harder. It's not the first time that's ever happened. As I've mentioned, there have been other ancient cultures that have been just as, if not more, deviant. This is not new. This is common. God knew that this was going to be a particular area. He knew this was going to be a struggle for us. There's a reason, as we just learned in the previous chapter, there's a reason He called His people early on to circumcision. Because He says, this is what I want from you. If you can follow me in something so personal and intimate, if you can give that to me, then I'm your God. And if you look at the, the difference between that circumcision that Abraham was willing to honor versus how Sodom and Gomorrah treated God when he walked into their city, then you understand the level of depravity that he's dealing with, the level of abomination that he's dealing with. So what I would call you to is your sexuality, if you follow God, belongs to God. And He doesn't recoil from you. He knows it's a struggle. He knows it's hard. And, he, and if you're saying, no, but I was born with this particular struggle or this particular temptation, He says, yeah, I know. I know. What do you think I died for? He knows. Stop hiding it from Him take it to him. Have the conversation with him. 
because you come up short of his standard there and in every other way, you're not going to fool him and convince him that somehow you, you have managed to, to secretly crack the code and, just, and because you have the right behavior and nobody knows what's going on in your head or heart, then somehow you've hit the, hit the righteousness jackpot when it comes to sexuality. You haven't. I haven't. You haven't. The most celibate person in the world hasn't. Nobody's got it right because it's so entwined into our spirit of what we want and how we perceive ourselves and how we perceive other people, and, and it's tied into our, our ego and our emotions and our self-concept, and it affects everything we do. And we've had psychologists over the years that have had a heyday with this and attach it to literally every part of our behavior. Some of that's overblown, but it, it's, it, it, there's, there's something there. So don't try to separate out elements of yourself. Don't say, well... You know, this, this part of me is acceptable and this part of me is not. If you belong to Christ, you are accepted by Christ. And nobody gets a pass when it comes to the standard of righteousness. If you're trying to give yourself a pass on the standard of righteousness when it comes to sexuality, then what you're saying is, I don't need Jesus' death for me in that area. I'm just going to say it's righteous anyway. Don't do that. Don't minimize the blood of Christ. If God says sex is to be between a married man and woman for life, celibate, honoring to him, honoring to the people in the relationship for the purpose of producing righteous offspring and binding that relationship in closeness, and that's the standard, then that's the standard. And guess what? None of us gets it right. Every single one of us fails against that standard over and over and over again. But that's why Jesus died, isn't it? But he didn't die so that we can pretend that we're more righteous than we are. He died so that we can look to him and need him desperately and submit to following him in all elements of our being and our life. And when we see somebody else struggling in a particular area to say, I get it, I struggle too. You're not worse than I am. The real tragedy would be if we didn't call it sin when the Bible says it's sin. The real tragedy would be if we minimize Christ. Why don't we just say, yeah, sex is hard. It's a hard, hard area. It's a difficult area, and it's part of the human struggle, and it's eternally part of the human struggle, and God's known it and given us clues. I mean, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, He's given us clues that this is going to be a struggle. He talks with Eve about it, talks with Adam about it. He goes to circumcision with Abraham. I mean, this, this, this is an issue all the way through. Jesus has asked a lot of questions about these things when he has his ministry on earth. So don't shy away from it. Have the conversation. Sodom and Gomorrah is a great opportunity to do that. But let's also not oversimplify the concept of, you know, of Sodom and Gomorrah and you know, lift out one element of the sin there and hold it up as the new standard for what's right and what's wrong. That's not the point of that story. It is not to give us a new scale of what's righteous and what's unrighteous. It's to show us what unrighteousness really is. It's to show us what the, the depravity ultimately is a seizing and mistreatment of God our Creator, and He calls that abominable. And that that sexual desire is not just in the body, it was in people and how they treated people and what they thought they deserved from the world and what they thought they deserved from creation and what they thought they deserved from their creator. As we uh, take communion together, then let's just be honest with God. Let's be open with Him, with our whole self. Let's not pretend to be something that we are or something that we aren't. Let's not minimize our sin. Let's not explain it away and uh, psychobabble it away or culturally whitewash issues that we have in our heart. You know what God's standard for sex is for you, and you know where you're missing it. The wrong thing to do is hide it from them or pretend they, that it's not an issue. Have the conversation. The wrong thing to do is to let the devil whisper to you that, that, you, that this is specific to you and nobody would ever understand and God, God rejects you for this. It's not true. It's not true. Those are lies. So let's take communion together. For those of you who, aren't, uh, who haven't been coming here long, we have communion up at the front. 
uh, well, you can walk up and take it um, at your leisure. If you want to grab somebody and pray with them, please do. I'll be over there. Uh, I'm willing to pray with anybody. I usually wander around. You'll find me somewhere. Johnny's around. He'll pray with you. Uh, my lovely wife, Rachel, will be over there. She's, welcome, she's happy to pray with anybody who'd rather pray with a woman. Uh, also, joyful giving. We have boxes in the back. If you're not giving online, we call you to give, not because we need or want your money, but because it's a call to obedience, and we work really hard to do the best we can with it. Um, so pray, take communion, be honest with God, and worship. Worship is really important. All right, I love you guys. Let's pray. Father, please press your truth on our heart, Lord. Thank you that your word shows us the, the spectrum of your righteousness versus our unrighteousness, which reveals to us your character and your love and how good and kind you are and how accepting you are and how merciful you are. Have mercy on us, Lord. We're sinners. And thank you that you say that by Christ, you can and do and want to have mercy on us and accept us by the standard of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.